Okay, I'm going to read from <clears throat> Matthew, the 11th chapter. This has been on my heart for a while uh, in the midst of other things, but it, uh, the Holy Spirit has his way, and his way is the right way because only he can correlate all those scriptures and bring them into the substance of the counsel that we need for that time. And even what he gives us presently, what, it, what he gives us through his word presently has, has dealt with the past is what we have presently in fellowship with him and it's what's preparing us for the future, not only in time, but also, of course, in eternity because the great parenthesis of time is eternity. <laughs> so, in Matthew the 11th chapter, this is what it says. Matthew 11. And, and uh, this is very interesting how, how this is brought out to us. In verse uh, 16 of Matthew 11, he said, but where, whereunto, what will I liken or compare this generation? It is like unto children sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows, meaning they're occupied with all the details of life. That's what they're occupied with in the world system. And they're sitting there, and meaning they're not going forward, they're just sitting there in the markets. And so that's because money is, is, is the issue, that money, and, and of course with any of us, and, and uh, <clears throat> with any of us in the flesh it is, but when we're not, thank God it's not that way. We're not held captive. And then it says calling unto their fellows, those that are like them, that, that are like-minded, saying, we have piped unto you, and you have not danced. We have mourned unto you, and you have not lamented, meaning everything is about themselves. <laughs> and when we make things about ourselves, we tell them to others so, so that they can uh, make the self that we're projecting and, and, and giving them, they can make the issue of. <laughs> it's not too much fun, is it? And then it says this in verse 18, For John came neither eating nor drinking. He, he wasn't much on. He had camel's hair and he ate locusts. He wasn't like others. And they say he has a demon because he's not like them. Okay? Because he's not functioning in the world like them. So obviously there's nothing wrong with them. There's something wrong with him. It's interesting. And then... It says here, the Son of Man, this is talking about Christ, God in humanity, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, just like a regular person would. And they say, behold, a man gluttonous and a wine bibber. Can you imagine the deception calling God and humanity a wine bibber, you know, a man... A man who, you know, he, he, he loves wine. He likes wine and what it does to him. <laughs> and he's gluttonous, too. Of course, those things, again, they're emblematic and symbolic of the world, making everything about the lust patterns and, and the self-life. And then he says, a wine beber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom 
is justified of her children. That's an amazing verse. Wisdom is justified of her children, bringing out in them what they've received from Christ. Verse 20, it says, Then began he, Christ, to upbraid the cities, wherein most of his mighty works were done, and they still didn't repent. They still didn't do an about-face. They still didn't change their course because they refused the word, that life that came from Christ. So then he said, Woe unto you, Chorazin. Woe unto you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it would be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. For you, Capernaum, which are exalted unto heaven, will be brought down to hell. This is the self-life. This is the unsaved. This is the self-life. And obviously, will be brought down to hell. And if you see this, you see that the world, how the world functions under the prince and power of the air in Ephesians 2.2, 2, and functions under Satan, who will ultimately, though he wants to exalt himself for a time in his deception, in Isaiah 14, 9 to 17, he will eventually, in 14, 16, and 17 of Isaiah, be brought down to where he actually belongs and where he's actually headed to. And all the unsaved, obviously, that function in him are headed to. Again, here in Matthew eleven twenty three, and you, Capernaum, are exalted unto heaven, will be brought down. In other words, you promote yourself. And we know that in Psalm 75, 6 and 7, for promotion comes neither from the east nor from the, from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge, north, ruling. He puts down one and exalts or promotes another, you see. And thank God we, we can live in the promotion of the mind of Christ in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 16 and thus have proper reality and proper order because God's order, his only order, his only reality is Christ. And that's a beautiful truth that we have in him. So he says again that, again, that, but I say unto you that it would be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Meaning, here's Christ, and he had been in person, God in person, and doing so much in their midst, seeing miracle after miracle, hearing most inc- the most incredible word himself, expressing himself through that word, in their very presence, something they didn't have in Sodom and Gomorrah. And you can see ultimately what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. You can read in Genesis the 18th, specifically the 19th chapter, of what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. He said it's going to be more tolerable. It would have been for them, and look what happened then, (laughs) than it will be for them and their day because of their rejection of him. And that's what they did. This is speaking of, this is the religious crowd, and they constantly rejected God and humanity. Constantly rejected him. They rejected his words. And the book of, the Gospel of John brings this out in those chapters in John. 
starting at the fourth chapter and ending at the 19th chapter of John. But they rejected his works, his words first. They rejected his works. Ultimately, they rejected his person. They said, not this man. We do not want this man. We would rather have a thief and a robber. Not this man, they said in John 18, verse 40. And they said, furthermore, crucify him, murder him, get rid of him in John 19 and verse 15. And all of this is going on. He's being completely rejected. Of course, we know that if they hated him and rejected him in John 15, 18, they're going to hate and reject us because we're in the world, but not of it. Jesus was in the world in John 17 and verse 14, but he wasn't of it, and neither are we in John 17 and the 16th verse. We're not of this. We're in it, but not of it. That's why even for the believer, they have the flesh still in them. <laughs> we have it in us, regardless of what the one naturists will, will teach. Teach very wrongly too, by the way and thus teach themselves and their own interpretation of the word, of which there is no private interpretation. The only way a believer can privately interpret the word in, in 2 Peter 1 and verse 20 is to do so in the flesh. And we have the flesh in us in Romans 8 9, but we are not of it. And that's why those words and we, uh, the Holy Spirit has put, as, and for me personally, and I think with all of us, if we understand and we're guided by him, the, the stress on those words, in and of, they're very, very f uh, full of meaning, it's, uh, particularly in the context of where they're found. But in the midst of all this rejection, this is what Jesus said. At that time, Jesus answered. See, he's giving us an answer to all the reason why for all this rejection and the reason we don't have to live in it. And, and allow it to infiltrate our thinking. And this is what he's teaching us. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, O Father. Because when we're rejected of the world, when we're rejected, it has to do with the glory of God through Christ in us, and they reject God on account of that. Of course, that started way back in Genesis, the fourth chapter, when we see at, um, Abel and Cain in that fourth chapter and we see ultimately where he ended up, Cain versus Abel in, in uh, Genesis chapter 4 in those first 22 verses there. But here he says, I, I thank you, O Father. See? When we're rejected of the world, huh, what do we have to be thankful for? Because we're we have the glory, glory of Christ in us. We have that treasure in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. He is that treasure. And the world's always going to reject Christ, the most valuable treasure that God has ever given, his son, to us. But he said, I thank you, O Father. What are we to be occupied with? The rejection? Or to be thankful for what we have? We have so much to be thankful for. That's why... The Holy Spirit using the, the vessel Paul said in Ephesians 5.20, you can be f thankful for all things. For all things. In the midst of this evil world, there's the rejection and hatred. We can have so much to be thankful for. Because we're not sitting in the marketplace, sitting down like little children. We're going forward. On our way to meet our precious Savior, to meet him face to face in an exchanged 
a glorified fellowship that nothing will ever again interfere or disturb us. And we see that crystal clear. We see it very, very clearly through the word of God. And so we can be thankful in all things. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 18, we can be thankful for all things and in all things. Okay? Because we're in Christ, we are not of the flesh or of the world. See, the flesh in the Christian will always be occupied not with being thankful for the things that we have in Christ, but for the rejection. Some Christian, boy, we make that in the flesh, we'll make that our whole life. This person rejected me. That person rejected me. And instead, no, here it is. Here's what he's teaching us. Jesus is teaching us by his very example, by his very life. I thank you, O Father. Why? You're Lord of heaven and earth. <laughs> he's still in control. He's the Lord of not only our position in Christ, which is untouchable in 1 John 5.18, but we have so much to be thankful for as we pass through this earth of which no matter what, he's still in control of. Ultimately, we will see that by the time we get to Revelations, the 19th and 20th chapters, we will see how he's so in control. And all the way through the epistles of what some say are Paul, I refer by the grace of God, these are the, the epistles of Christ given to Paul to give to us. <laughs> and so he said, I thank you. I thank you, oh, Father. Oh, we're fathered. He's fathering us on our way to be with him forever. He's our Father. And he's Lord of heaven and earth because you have hid these things from the wise and the prudent, the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of the world. Now you get into 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, and you'll see the wisdom. And you can start in the 18th verse there and go right, right to the end of that particular chapter in the 31st verse, and you're going to see that's the wisdom of the world that he's talking about that functions under Satan, who's on his way to the lake of fire, Satan. Now, this is what it says. You've hid these things from, from those that think they're wise and prudent. What does that mean? Well, in Psalm 10, verse 4, it says that God is not in all of their thoughts. That's what it says. And it doesn't mean that he's in some of them. It brings out clearly he's not in any of their thoughts. No, they're too busy sitting in the marketplace and too, too busy gathering others unto themselves to lift themselves up. And that's their wisdom, which is not of God. It's worldly wisdom. It's not of Christ, who is the wisdom of God. And 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 24. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And he's not given us the spirit of, of fear, being rejected. When we're rejected, it's, it's no fear for us. They rejected Christ. They, they kept his sayings. They rejected him. They did. In Psalm 35 and verse 19. In Psalm 69 and verse 4, and in John 15 and verse 25, they rejected him, and they're going to reject us, and that's a badge of honor, something to be thankful for. Instead of functioning under the bondage and evil deception of it, we're freed from it. <laughs> and so, 
What does that rejection do? It just causes us to go to, to continually go to our Father and be thankful. See? So you hid it from the wise and the prudent and have revealed it unto who? Babes. Us. Revealed it unto babes. We're all his children. And to be a child, you have to have a father. And thank God we do. He, we're all the children of God by faith because of in and by Christ Jesus in Galatians 3 and verse 26. So he said, you revealed it unto babes, meaning, meaning we realize that we are dependent upon him for everything. It's like, like a child. For instance, we have a little baby girl in our local assembly, and she is dependent on, on daddy and mommy. She's dependent on him for everything because she can't do anything herself. I mean, not right now. She's, uh, you know, she's beginning to sit up, but she can't even walk. She has to be carried. <laughs> she's dependent. Babes. That's what it is. Babes. Babes. Humble, dependent ones. And he said, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. It's good. Why? Because, oh, how he loves to father us when he finally brings us to a place where we realize and experience, you know, without Christ, we don't have a father. And without him, in John 15, 1 through 5, we can do nothing at all, not one single thing. And if I have not a love or a loving father in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 2, then where is all my value in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3? It profits me what? All my profit is the fact that because of Jesus Christ, because he has brought me into, he himself has brought me into this loving relationship, this in, incredibly eternal embrace of a loving father. It teaches me constantly right now on this earth, I can't do anything without him. And that, that'll be our lesson for all eternity. For all eternity. We will never outgrow being loved by him. Ever. Ever. Now here we're occupied with the need occupied with that need. That need is to be loved. But for all eternity, it won't necessarily even be, there won't even be the thought of a lack of need because we will never come to the end of his love. And that's what it says in Ephesians 3 and verse 19, to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. Meaning, meaning, we was just constantly receiving the love of a loving Father through Christ for all eternity, and that's in our own individuality. And this is why it seems so good in your sight. And the good here that works in his sight is Romans 8, 28 for us in Christ. We know that all things work together for what? What is it? It's ice agathon. For God's own good, because he, he's invested the good of who he is in, in the active energy of his nature, which is love, and keeping us walking in that, the purity of his nature, light, and that's the scriptures, and that's what we receive. That's why Jesus in John 1 and verse 1 is the word of God, and that word is, he even said about himself in John 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. And God wants us to be lit up with who we are in Christ. You see that beautifully brought out in the Hebrew in Psalm 34 and verse 5. They were lit up. <laughs> they were lit up. And he wants to light us up with who we are in Christ in this love life that he has given to each of us.
And that's why he said it's good. All things work together for the good. To them that love God. What does that mean? That means we must be humble and receive it. To them that love God. That speaks of obedience. That's why obedience is not hard. It's easy. It's the easiest thing to do. Because Jesus Christ fulfilled all of our obedience in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 6. He fulfilled it all. And that's why that's the test of our love. Not in terms of accusation or condemnation. No, it's just to show us where we are. The test is, have I received his love? How do I do it? Through obedience. And what's that? Submission of my will. That's what's brought out in 1 John 5 verses 1 and 2 specifically. But here, it's good. That's why in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 15, all things work together for what? The good. God's very good. (laughs) To them, to us, right? And that's why all things work together for the good. And then what does that do when I receive it? It redounds and cyclical. It goes right back to the glory of God. Right back. And that's why in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 18, all things are of God who's reconciled us. So this good has already reconciled us in our position, but now he wants us to experience it. How do we experience it? Through a loving Father, because we have Jesus Christ as our precious Lord and Savior and Master. And he masters us with, with his love. And we'll never come to the end of it. Then it says in verse 27, All things are delivered unto me of my Father. And no man knows the Son but the Father. Notice that. No man knows the Son but the Father. Neither knows any man the Father except the Son. And he to whomsoever the Son will reveal. And of course, we know for us right now, it is the Holy Spirit who takes the things of Christ in John 16, 13, and 14 and shows them unto us. He shows us constantly, constantly reminding us that we have a loving Father. And even that chastisement in Proverbs 3, 10, uh, 11, and 12, even that chastisement in Proverbs 3, 11, and 12, and Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, all the way to the 29th verse in that chapter, it is loving chastisement. Our Father is a loving Father, and He deals with us lovingly in the love of His Son who propitiated Him and became our substitute in dealing with everything we could never deal with, thus reconciling us and bringing us into a, a place, where, and that place is who we are in Christ, to be loved by a Father. That's why he said this, as the world rejecting you, be thankful. And that thankfulness will lead you to do this, come unto me. Now when we hurt, why do we wait? Because we're trying to deal with things that only he can deal with. And he only deals with things about us that he's already dealt with. And so it says, come unto me. He says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But to experience that, rest, to experience that, you have to take my yoke. Now remember, we've said before in the past that the yoke is 
yoke that Christ has for us. He, as fulfillment, as the fulfillment of the type in Numbers 19, 1 and 2, never needed a yoke. It was to be spotless and blameless. And why is it a red heifer there? Well, in that sense, Christ, he submitted to his Father to become that sin sacrifice in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. But he had to be spotless and no yoke. And a yoke always speaks of restraint. We need to be restrained through dependence and humility constantly so that we can receive the grace that is in him that we won't have experientially until we submit to him in 1 Peter 5 and verse 6 through 10 and in James chapter 4 verses 6 through 10. We see that clearly brought out. So he says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. He has a yoke designed specifically for each of us. And in that, with that yoke, that's where we learn. He has to restrain us, or in other words, constrain us by love. He constrains us. We see that. The love of Christ constrains us because we thus judge that, he, that if one died, all were dead. And in other words, when we try to function outside of who we are in Christ, what are we functioning? Separation, death. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14. And that's why it says in the 15th verse that they which live now in Christ, Christ is our life, in Colossians 1 verse 27 and in Colossians 3 verses 4, chapter 3 verse 4, he is our life. We're not trying to live the Christian life by a set of rules, by a set of do's and don'ts. Christ is our life, and we just receive it and function in it. And, but we have to take that yoke upon us to learn of him and who he is in us, to learn of him. For he said, I am meek and lowly. I am gentle and humble in heart, in mind and emotions, and you will find rest unto your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And what is this teaching us this morning? This is what it's teaching us. That all labor and are heavy laden. Doesn't matter who it is. Saved or unsaved. <laughs> all labor and are heavy laden. Now, do we have to anymore? No. Do we learn by it? Yes. We learn by going the wrong way. You see, when we don't receive grace. He allows a time for our own backsliding in Jeremiah 2 and verse 19, based upon chapter 2 and verse 23 of Jeremiah, the horse and the mule, they kick up, snort up in pride and rebellion and, and reaction against God and resist him because their own backsliding. So in other words, a believer for us in Christ, and when we don't receive in humility what we have in Christ, or when we refuse it, then grace is, is not teaching us anymore. What's the only other thing that can teach us? Backsliding. Backsliding. What a way to learn. Oh boy. It's a long journey that way. So all labor and are heavy laden, but all have to come unto him. You know, ultimately all will. We come to him as a loving, and he appears to us as a loving father. Isn't that awesome? That's the only way he ever appears to us, by the way. Any other appearance is a projection of a lie against the truth of how God sees us in Christ. He is a loving father and nothing else. He doesn't have anything against us. 
Matter of fact, he's dealt with it through Christ. And he's so satisfied and been so propitiated to the point where Christ could be the substitute and deal with all that, distance those sins and that evil. And thank God, when Christ came, he is the manifestation and the revelation of all distance removed between God and the individual. That's what he's done. And so it brings out this very, very, very clearly that we, we come unto him. How do we come unto him as a loving father? What's the only other way to come unto him? And ultimately all will. Judgment at the great white throne. And Revelations 20, 11 to 15, they have to face him. They will ultimately come unto him. Who? They will come unto Christ. Because all judgment the Father gave to Christ in John 5 and verse 22. All judgment. Now, is there any for us? None. Why? He took it all and removed it. Dealt with it. He dealt with it. That's how he removed it dealing with it. But for others that refuse Christ, refuse the payment, is it dealt with? Not, it's not dealt with. That has to do with our sins, by the way. Their old nature was not crucified, by the way. They'll still have that old nature, by the way. You know, the, the, some have said the greatest pain in hell will be the memory of receiving, uh, of rejecting, I should say, perfect love. That's when they face him. Prior to being cast into the lake of fire. That's the second death. Some have said it's like we put on new bodies. They're reunited with their old body. Where all those lusts are. All those lust patterns. And it will never be fulfilled. Ever. Because lust is insatiable. And they will never even have what they thought was the provision for it. That's what they do. They have to come unto him in that way. Not us. Thank God. How sobering and beautiful and thankful that we can be. And he said, come unto me in obedience with your will submitted and then you will receive rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. That has to do with our will. Take my yoke upon you. Because he says, your yoke is what I have designed for you specifically. Your yoke. And then you'll learn like only you can. Like only the individual can. Thank God. This does away with all this, the nonsense of comparing in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 12. It does away with all of that. All of it. And so you'll learn of me. You will learn of me being in you and you, and you being in me in that oneness that was the result of his finished work and his high priestly prayer in John 17, 11, 21 and 22. You'll be one with me in the most individual way that will be brought out in Revelations 2 and verse 17, the hidden man in the white stone. But he said, you will learn of me. And that speaks of vital union, a vital union that nothing can separate. That's positional truth. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Can anything separate us? Can it? In Romans 8, 35 to 39. You know, it starts out with, there's no condemnation, no accusation, no guilt, no condemnation to them that are in Christ. It starts out, no condemnation. And if you can't condemn me in Romans 8, 1, you may reject me, but you can't condemn me. You'll only reject me, and you only reject Christ based upon your own condemnation. But for us in Christ in Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation. So our start is no condemnation in Christ, none. 
<laughs> what a way to start. How many Christians know that? Experience their position in reality and their experience. No condemnation. You know how it ends up in verse 39? No separation. No separation forever. He's working that into our experience uh, based upon our position in Christ. And that's vital union. Me. There's no other means of identity for us than Christ in us and us in Christ. Period. Finished. Done. Done. Otherwise, if Christ is not my continual identity through humility and dependence in my experience by grace, bringing in the reality of my position, then what, is, what am I left with? Otherwise, I am lost in what I think are my own thoughts. And you will find. You will find. But when, when we do come to him, what do we find? That he's always there to be found. Every time I come, every time I'm humble, every time I'm dependent, I find that he's there. And I find that he's there waiting in his love for me to flow through that grace. He's waiting to be gracious in Isaiah 30 and verse 18. And again, that grace that he gives to those that he's humbled. He's not leaving it up to us. That's why the plan of God is designed to do one thing for those that God loves deeply. It's to humble them so that he can actually love them <laughs> and love us, which is an amazing thing. And you will always find he's there to be found. Why? Because his thoughts proceed from him, his life, and not our own thoughts. Not our own thoughts. And his thoughts, and only his thoughts, bring in what? Rest. Rest. He is our only place of rest. Not soul. Not self-consciousness. And that's why the word of God has to come in and separate self-conscious living. Where everything is flux. Everything needs something. Never satisfied. Nothing makes any sense. The word comes in and separates the soul self-conscious living, self the object and not Christ, into God-conscious living, Christ is our object, so that we no longer live in subjectivity, our source within ourselves, which is under Satan, but we live in objectivity, a source outside of ourself. And thank God for that. So, as we begin to, to uh, tie this up this morning, as God does so through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can see that He is our only place of rest. Because to live in self-consciousness is to have, is death, separation from life. Separated, where everything is dark. And doesn't seem, nothing seems to be lit up. <laughs> because that has to do with thinking that's outside the light and purity of the love of the, of the Father through Christ in us. <clears throat> but we function in his consciousness in us. He's the, he is the source of our cleansed conscience. He himself, be, meaning in Hebrews 10, 1 and 2, he is the very source of our conscience now. We're no longer, we don't longer have to try and figure things out, evaluate good and evil by our own thoughts. He is the very purity of our conscience. He is himself. He gives us this pure conscience. That's why to the pure in Titus 1 and verse 15, to the pure all things are what? pure. We even see evil and rejection in the purity of who he is in us and who we are in him. And does it affect us? And if it does, what, is, what, what will God even use that for? To bring us to a loving father. 
right back into a love, uh, our place of a loving Father in and through and by Christ Jesus. So there's no darkness, there's no light in self-conscious thinking. But, but what? We have him as our consciousness. And now, moment by moment, I realize that I am, everything about me is of him. And can it fail? Will love ever fail in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 8? This is what it means that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So faith dependence gives me what? See, the lie from the enemy is that when you depend on him, you're going to lose something. You're going to lose something about yourself. Thank God we lost all that. Because the fact of the matter is, is that faith dependence is the means of freedom from my will and all of its negative effects. Because we know in Romans 7, 18, and, and in us, in our own will apart from him, is what? It profits me what? Nothing. And so what do we see? We see that we can't do it. How to perform that thing I find not in my self-consciousness. That's Romans 7.21. How to perform that which is good. In other words, I know it's good. I just can't do it. Why? And I'm trying to do it with me and my thoughts. God. And uh, there's no profit, no value there whatsoever. So faith dependence is the means and the reality of my freedom from my will and all of its negative effects and leaves me in my proper experience, which is the equal of my proper position, leaves me free in the freedom of who he is in me and who I am in him. He is my life, and my life is a life of freedom. In John 8, verse 32, and Galatians 5, 1. Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and the the truth will what? On a continual way, set you free. So for freedom's sake, in Galatians 5, 1 King James says, Stand fast on the liberty where Christ has made you free and stop being again entangled, tripped up into a yoke of bondage. Our thoughts, the enemy, projecting his thoughts and they become ours. Stand fast. But really the Greek says, for freedom's sake, Christ set you free. So be free. Free to what? Be loved. Because God, you know what God created us for? He created us to love us. That's why he created us. Like no other. Like no, not, not an angel, not any other creation. That's why he created us in his image, you know. And our proper image has to do with a love life. That when we function in that love life, nothing can disturb or distract it. Nothing at all. So as we close this morning, he is my life and it's a life of freedom. A life of freedom. His sovereign grace is continually revealing what our soul does not know before. We didn't know it, but now it's this truth. And that truth, when we receive it, has its own power. The truth is Christ in John 14, 6. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by him and through him because he's the one mediator in Job 9, verse 33, and in 1 Timothy 2, and verse 5. He's the one mediator. He's the only way of salvation. No other name which speaks of a person and the work that they've accomplished in Acts 4, verse 12, can, can be saved other than by that name, and that name is Jesus Christ our Lord and our precious Savior. That sovereign grace reveals to me in my experience what I didn't know before is truth. And when I experience the truth and sets me free, it's the result of the power of his love that's done that. 
And no longer do I live a life dependent on me or trying to depend on someone else. No, he has done all what he's doing in me and through me. He's done it all. All without me. All without me being involved. He finished the work. And that's that life of freedom. And that's why it's not doing, but receiving. So Father, thank you, thank you, thank you that we have this yoke, that we can have this rest, that you've made this ours. And we don't no longer have to live under the false principle, the false projection and lie of human philosophy, which is satanic in its origin, that we can, that that it's up to us to do what those thoughts project us to do. We no longer have to function under the lie. We are free. We're already free. We already have everything right now. And you're just working it into us in our experience. Father, we thank you and praise you for this truth. To your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.